0: Well, good morning. On a Saturday morning, nonetheless, it's great to see you, and it's a pleasure to be able to be a part of uh, Biblical Reconciliation uh, course. Let's let's begin with prayer, and when, then we'll jump right into our topic, shall we? Gracious Lord, we are grateful that we have the opportunity to be able to study the Word in a very practical way today. We, we realize that uh, the church is built upon um, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Part of the expectations and part of the design of the church is um, personal, um, close, interpersonal relationships among people, but oftentimes in the sin-cursed world in which we lived and with depravity and with Satan constantly on the prowl, that difficulties, hardships, conflicts occur uh, among believers uh, in marriages. Uh, they occur father sometimes in leadership and they also distract from the testimony of of, of the church of Jesus Christ and the ongoing work uh, that should be going on in our world today and Father, your word has acknowledged that the first century church was not immune from these kind of difficulties and hardships and the Bible And especially the New Testament gives us plenty of evidence to indicate that conflicts were very much a part of the first century church. And therefore, we understand that conflicts also are going to be a part of the church today. So the issue here, Father, is how we deal with those conflicts and how you use conflict in our life to grow us in terms of personal sanctification, to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ, And I pray that the time that we spend together will actually be beneficial, uh, a time of encouragement, um, and give us a way in which we can actually proceed in a biblical way to seek reconciliation um, when conflict does occur, realizing, Father, that sometimes not all reconciliation is possible but we commit our time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you that I have a high respect for Grace Bible, and uh, of course, our family has been a part of it. Our son, James, was here for early on in the earlier years and on staff with Pastor Steve and, and uh, others here at the church, and we every time we have an opportunity, we come up and visit our other son, Jay, and his wife, and so we have a chance to to sit in on the the church and it's a it's a great joy to do so. You'll notice that we've entitled our series this morning "Biblical Reconciliation" and it's purposely designed that way. Most of the time, when you're out there in the world and you're among um, even sometimes other Christians, people will talk about biblical conflict resolution. Um, that's really a really worldly concept. Uh, If you do a lot of reading in the area of interpersonal relationships, conflict resolution, and even the material that the world offers out there, everybody is focused on conflict resolution. And the Bible does not seem to be focused on that at all because the Bible actually acknowledges at some particular point that there are going to be times where conflict resolution is not really possible. But And in fact, let me give you an early illustration of that. If you would take your Bible just for a moment, let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Some conflict among believers, you understand, the Bible presents as necessary. Um, It's necessary. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul addresses conflicts that were going on in the church there at Corinth. And he says. In verse 17, he says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for better, but for the worse. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you and in part, I believe it for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among among you. In other words, um, the Apostle Paul's stating that conflict actually has a very good purpose and that it divides uh, those who are really serious about following what the truth says and what the Word of God says and those who are not. And it has a tendency to weed out those who are not really interested in following the Word of God. And in fact, for many years when I was a pastor and we had difficulties that occurred in our church or I had to work with other churches that had difficulties, this actually was a very helpful verse in helping me understand that um, these things are not major obstacles, but they are, under the sovereign design of God, very purposefully, sovereignly meant to bring about greater truth and the exaltation of the truth and um, and also to sanctify believers. So conflict was not something that was dreaded, from my perspective. Conflict was something that we could use as a tool in order to see how we can grow and um, change and become more Christ-like. That's really key. So the goal here is not resolution. That's not our goal. Now, in some cases, you may find a resolution to a conflict. That's good. But the goal here is reconciliation. Uh, Let's go back to what the Lord Jesus said in in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 just for a moment. And you can see this. When uh, he talks about in verse 9, as part of the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now these, he doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers, right? He says blessed are the peacemakers, those people who are seeking to make peace among believers, all right? Um, and that has to do with the whole process of reconciliation. Later on, when he's talking about this, he says, um, in verse 21, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty of the, before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin, and whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the, the fiery hell. Therefore, If you are presenting your offering at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go and first be reconciled. He doesn't say go and resolve the conflict. He says be reconciled because personal, interpersonal reconciliation goes way beyond just mere conflict resolution, all right? I know of people that in churches who have had major conflicts with one another, and they resolve the conflict, but the personal relationship between the two of them uh, never was resolved. There was no reconciliation between them, and so they just put up with one another. That's all they do. From that particular point on, they just put up with one another. Uh, we to to seek some kind of conflict resolution is to fall far short of the goal of interpersonal relationship. So when when a conflict ensues among people and there's a difficulty, and it can be a very significant difficulty, our goal is to see that relationship restored to better relationship than it was before, before the conflict that was. And oftentimes I say that in marriage counseling. Uh, I'll I'll tell people, uh, I'll have a husband and wife who has had major problems um, that have gone on and conflicts that have gone on or maybe ensued over a number of years. And um, each party believes that they're correct in this. And uh, I'll tell them, I'm not seeking to just resolve your conflict. I'm not seeking to do that. I'm seeking for the two of you to have a better interpersonal relationship than you had even before the conflict occurs. That's where true reconciliation takes place. That's what happens. And this is what we're supposed to be doing in terms of reconciliation. All right. This is what we're supposed to be doing in terms of reconciliation. So you'll notice in your notes there that every conflict within the church presents the pastor with a great teaching opportunity because every conflict within the church is a reminder of how much Christ is needed. The source of all conflict begins in the heart. The source of all conflict begins in the heart. If the heart was right, there would be really no ultimate conflicts. So take your Bible. Let's go over to James 4. It's listed there on your sheet. And let's take a look at that just for a moment in James chapter 4. And here James speaks to this issue quite well when he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? There's a great question. What is the source of it? He's talking about the early church. He's talking about many of the conflicts that occurred in the early church, and we could go into great detail talking about how the early church was under a lot of pressure and a lot of stress, especially the Jewish Christians who had suffered the loss of their jobs, were persecuted by fellow Jews, persecuted oftentimes by many of the Romans as well, And it caused a lot of conflict even among the believers. And when he asked the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, based upon our contemporary culture today, probably we would answer that without reading any further. Well, it has to do with adversarial personalities. You know, it has to do with the fact that... um, I have a personality and my wife has a different personality and those personalities collide. That's what our society says. Um, I'm phlegmatic and my wife is caloric and as a result of that, um, those, those personalities just don't go together at all. They cause major problems between us. And really, all of that kind of thinking really goes back to ancient Greek mythology, which um, you probably heard of Hippocrates. Hippocrates was the one who created the what is known today as the Hippocratic Oath that medical doctors have to share. And Hippocrates used to say that your personality is located in one of four bodily humors, Um, blood, uh, yellow bile, uh, black bile, and phlegm. And if you had an overabundance of any one of those things, then it determined your personality. And the Latin form of those, actually, blood would be sanguine, where we get the word sanguine from. Uh, Black bile would be melancholia, Uh, yellow bile would be caloric, um, and um, phlegm would be phlegmatic. All right, so if you had an overabundance, and Hippocrates used to say, I can prove this to you. Anyone who's really sanguine has too much blood. They're really outgoing, the life of the party, fun to be around, lots of energy all the time, that kind of a person. And so he developed bloodletting, so he... Drain their blood, and this person would go from a really energetic person to a. <laughs> overnight. All right? Quickly, there, proof. Personality's in your blood. You know? And if a person was uh, kind of sad, sorrowful, melancholy, it's because you have too much black bile so you would give them really powerful herbal laxatives well after a person's been sitting in the john for about 2 or 3 days everything looks up their whole personalities changed all right proof it's in there it's in there no 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 our personalities are not rooted in those things Personality from a biblical perspective is actually fluid. It's not fixed. It's fluid. It changes over a period of time. I'm not the same personality I was when I graduated from high school, and I tell all my students, you ought to be happy about that. I'm not the same person. That's called divine sanctification that goes on in a person's life as a result of the Lord Jesus Christ changing a person substantively. So The idea here is, what is it that really is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Does it have to do with adversarial personalities? No, it doesn't have to do with that at all. In fact, he says there in verse 1, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. It's what you want more than anything else. What you think is going to bring you happiness or pleasure. That's what you think. Any of you that have raised children, you understand that. When a little five-year-old gets upset at mommy and daddy because they're not getting what they want, what is it that they want? They want something that they believe is going to bring them pleasure. I want that candy. Our oldest granddaughter, when she was very, very little, sitting in the back seat with my wife the car one day and she is um, she can barely talk she can barely talk at all but she learned very quick a few words and my wife had some little breath mints and she popped them in her mouth and my granddaughter turns to her and out of the clear blue sky says candy have candy have oh no no these are breath mint they're meant for adults oh she didn't like that idea All right, No, she wanted the candy. She wanted it right now. And she's going to cut a shine until she got her candy. What is it that causes fights and quarrels? It has to do with what's going on internally within that person, how that person is processing life, and what they're thinking about in terms of what they believe is going to bring them pleasures. He says you lust, and that word lust... Oftentimes, we only think of it in sexual terms, but it's really a deep-seated passion. You lust for something, you desire it deeply, and you do not have, so you murder. Now, I don't think he's referring to actual literal murder here, because I don't think the Christians are going around murdering one another, but murder, in the same sense that Jesus spoke about it back in Matthew 5, Where And we read that passage a little bit earlier. The heart of a hater and the heart of a murderer is the same kind of an heart. Just like the heart of an adulterer and the heart of a person who lusts sexually is the same heart. It's just that one has acted it out and the other one hasn't, right? It's the same heart. So the heart of a hater and the heart of a murderer is the same heart. No difference between the two. You know that because you travel on L.A. freeways. You've been down the 405, you can see a lot of murderers in the 405. In fact, I was in an auto store recently, and they had uh, these things you can mount on the dashboard of your car and um, to help you if you get into really bad traffic. And it had little buttons on it where you could push it. And one said missile. The other one said machine gun. And the other one said um, uh, oh, grenade. So you could go down the freeway, and when people got in your way or slowed you down, you could just push those little buttons, and it goes Brrr, <laughs> You know, you can figuratively go down the freeway and blow up all the people in front of you because they're in your way. And our Lord says the heart of a hater and the heart of a murderer is the same heart. It's just that one has acted it out and the other one hasn't. It's the same heart. No difference between the two. So here James says... You lust, you do not have, so you murder. You are envious, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And the implication here is with proper motives because in verse 3 he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. What is the wrong motive? It's very self-centered whatever it is, it has to do with me and it has to do with my pleasures, has to do with what I want, what I think is going to bring me happiness or our marriage happiness or our relationship happiness, what I believe is going to happen. That's what causes conflict. So that you can spend it on your pleasures. Wow, that's very significant. Well, Let's take a look at this a little bit closer because we want to get to the heart of conflict. And Jesus is talking about what really matters here is evaluating what's going on in the inner person. What is happening in the inner person? So it's a really a look at the problem of sin as it affects worship of the in the heart. Worship in the heart. And make no mistake about it, the heart is the key area here. That's the location of it. And the Bible talks about it. The problem is that our view of the heart and the way the Bible uses the term heart is often at odds. We live in a European-American culture, and we're used to using the word heart. And oftentimes when we read our Bibles, we read that European-American view of the heart into the way in which the Bible views the heart, and it's a wrong view. The American-European view of the heart is one of romance. It's one of deep-seated feelings. That's the American-European. Anytime around Valentine's Day, what do you see in the stores? Big hearts, right? And boxes of chocolates in the shape of hearts, and cards in the shape of hearts. That's the American-European view of the word heart. The Hebrew word is the word lave. The New Testament word is the word cardia. And when you trace lave and when you trace cardia, through the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, and yes, I have done that. Let me give you a few examples of this. You can see on the screen here uh, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, so let's go back there just for a moment. We've got to, in a sense, correct the view of the heart if we're really going to understand what the Bible teaches about the heart. It says, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, in fact, in the Hebrew language, the word saw, the, Yahweh saw, is in the continuous sense. It's not a one time where he noticed this. He continually saw. Imperfect that the evil of man was great on the earth. And notice how he describes it here, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, this says nothing about feelings. It says nothing about romance. It does says nothing about deep-seated emotions. doesn't say anything about those things. But what it talks about is every intent of the thoughts of his heart every intense and the thoughts of his heart. So from a biblical perspective, the heart is not primarily the location of emotions. From a biblical perspective, the heart is where we think and where we perceive and evaluate our life, our interpersonal relationships. That's what the heart is. The heart is not the seat. Of romance, not in the Bible. Let me give you a few other illustrations of this, real quickly. Some of them are on your um, uh, on the chart there on the screen, but some of them are not. Let's see. Let's go over to Proverbs chapter twenty for a moment. Proverbs chapter twenty. You can see this, I think, pretty clearly here. It says, verse 5, Proverbs 20, verse 5, Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of discernment draws it out. That's a really good principle. I can't see your heart, you can't see my heart, but a a true man of discernment, a good counselor in this particular case, or even a good pastor using the word of God can draw out the desires of a person's heart what their desires are. If they understand people well, they understand what the Bible says about people, they can draw these particular issues out. And notice how he talks about it, that counsel. That word counsel there, as it's translated in uh, in the Legacy Standard Bible, can also be translated plans, or the Hebrew word can be uh, translated intentions. All right? So, when you get to this, you said the plans, the intentions, and the heart of a man are like deep water. We, we can't see them, they're buried deeply, but a man of discernment and prudence can actually bring them to the surface. What a person really wants. And again, the heart here is described as planning, intending, um, in a sense, counseling. Go back to chapter 19 and verse 21. Many thoughts are in a man's heart, but it is the counsel of Yahweh that will stand. All right. So here is, again, the heart is described as thinking, planning, purposing. That's what the heart does. It it purposes, it plans The, the deep part of man's heart. Um, All right, let's go to the New Testament. Let's look at how Jesus looks at this. Look at Mark chapter 7 and verse 20. Mark chapter 7 and verse 20. And notice how Jesus describes the heart. He says, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart... Proceeds the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Now, you understand that on the first thing on the list, when he talks about the heart of man, notice how he says, for from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts. So, the, the heart in the Bible is where we plan, where we intend, where we think. All right? That's the heart. It's not where you emotionally emote love to your spouse. <laughs> if you want an organ of the body, to talk about emotions, then the Bible has a different organ of the body. Ephesians 4.32 talks about the bowels. The bowels are the seed of emotions in the body. So we want to talk about romance in the Bible. We're going to talk about bowels. Now, I told my wife, I want to create a really biblical Valentine's card (laughs) that has bowels on the front of it and Cupid shooting arrows through bowels. She doesn't think it's going to sell very well. But at least people who are biblical would understand it. Um, So if you really, you know, gentlemen, you tell your wife, I love you with all my heart, she ought to slap you. All right, she ought to slap you because you're basically saying that you have good thoughts about her, all right, if you're talking biblically. But if you really want to express biblical emotion, I love you with all my bowels. That's where emotions are. Anybody that's been constipated knows how emotional that is, all right? I love you with all my bowels. That's the idea. That's where emotions come from. That's the organ of the body with emotions. But the heart has to do with planning, thinking, purposing, intending. You intend and you think and you purpose with your heart. That's what you do. That's the idea. Now, hopefully you've got that straight in your mind because now everything's going to make a lot more sense. When it comes to dealing, remember what James says, it's from within out of man that all these conflicts come from. So it has to do with the way that I'm thinking about myself, about my relationship with that other person, how I think about the circumstances of my life. All of that sets me up and that comes out of the heart. So there's the implications that's going on there. Now, in order to go on a little bit, in order to illustrate this, we could say it's something like this. The heart, then, becomes the control center for everything in life. The heart becomes con- control center of everything in life. It controls everything, ultimately, that you do. How you think about things, how you evaluate things, how you evaluate your relationships. This is all coming out of the heart. And it involves your thinking. And there are numerous passages that I've already given you. It involves your will and your choices because you choose that which your thoughts give you permission to choose. It has to do with your conscience. Um... Here in just a couple weeks, I'm going to be talking about that at Grace on our Sundays in July on a biblical view of the conscience. What is the conscience? What is that? What does the Bible say the conscience is? Our world has a different concept of the conscience than what the Bible does. What does the Bible say that the conscience truly is? It involves your motives. It, it involves your desires. All of that is the control center of life. It's what my motives and desires are. And simply put, this is all a part of the inner man. It's the part that God sees that other people cannot see, but it is a part of your life. And ultimately, it determines all of your behaviors. It determines all of your behaviors. So when your life is focused upon self and what's going to bring me pleasure, what's going to bring me happiness What I think is going to bring us joy, then it's always going to produce, in terms of behavior, rotten fruit. It's always going to produce that. It's always focused upon me. It's always going to produce rotten fruit. When it's focused on Christ, it's going to then produce good fruit when you're laser-focused on what is going to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are numerous ways that we could illustrate this, what is it that's going to do that? Then it's focused on... It's going to bring about good fruit in terms of good behavior. So it's out of the thoughts perceptions, thinking of the heart that all of this is produced. Now, so then, what's the occupation of the heart? The Bible describes the heart, every human being, whether they're an atheist or not, and you understand that there is no such thing in the Bible as a true atheist. Everybody knows that there's a God in their own conscience, man knows knows that, Romans 1, Romans 2. So anytime we have a person that comes to the door or I talk with somebody that claims to be an atheist, I often will say to them, I, I think that you know in the depths of your heart that there is a God. There, there is no such thing as a true atheist. People know that. And all of creation as Romans 1 says, is constantly bombarding that particular person with the fact that God is there in all of his glory. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, all of creation in the Hebrew terminology there is constantly bombarding them with the fact that God is there in all of his glory. So he has an internal witness, Romans 1, in his conscience. There's this external bombardment on the atheist. So he has to worship something, and he worships himself or numerous other things. I'll give you an illustration of that later. And sometimes Christians get wrapped up in the very same thing. The heart processes things and worships. And you can see it. The heart can worship possessions, Peace, popularity, prestige, play, power, pleasure, people, protection, physical health. All right? I'm a pastor, so I have to literate everything. It's just part of it. I, uh, and that's not an exhaustive list. It, it could, it, the heart could worship several other things as well. But this is what the heart worships when these things become the most important things in my life. I want them more than anything else. And I'm willing to do anything I can in order to get them. So when you're in a conflict, you're beginning to see at this particular point that it's the heart that really drives this conflict. It's what I am worshiping at that time. So this is a great question to ask. When I'm really upset, when I'm angered at my wife, at my husband, at my Christian friend, at my colleague at work, when I'm really upset, what is my heart really worshiping? What am I bowing down to? And our heart can do funny things because at the very core of our heart, we realize it is still plagued with sin. It is a redeemed heart. God is still in the process, if you're a true believer, of bringing about his sanctification in our lives. But we still struggle with sinful desires, sinful propensities, and weaknesses And we get wrapped up in the world around us that is constantly telling us to value things that the Bible tells us not to value. And we get angry when we don't get what we perceive. Which, one of the major problems then that comes about is the heart ends up Surrendering to idolatry or to lust. It idolizes certain things. Whatever it is that you want the most now becomes your idol. Anything that you want more than you want to be God's kind of man or God's kind of woman. Anything that you want more than that becomes your idol. Bible talks a lot about that and if we had more time we'd go through all these different passages we don't but let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 just for a moment as an example 1 Corinthians 10 here the apostle Paul is admonishing the Corinthian believers and using the people of Israel in their wilderness wanderings as an example of what they should not desire. Now look at verse 6, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6. Let's pick up there just for a moment. He says, um, now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. There's a lot in that word crave because... It's what a person perceives in their heart that they want really badly. It's what they crave, what they deeply desire, what they intend to get, crave. So these things happen in Old Testament Israel during their 40 years of wilderness wanderings to teach us not to crave the deep things of this life that people want. And then immediately when he says that in verse 7, he says, do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat, drink, they stood up to play, nor let us act immorally as some of them dead, and 23,000 fell in one day, nor let us put Christ to the test as some of them dead and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them dead and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he takes, he stands, take heed that he does not fall. And then you look at verse 14, he closes off by saying, therefore, beloved, flee from idolatry. So captured here between verse 7 and verse 14, where he talks about the fact of idolatry, he talks about people went into the wilderness eating. That's what they wanted to do. This is a time to go in the wilderness. We are now free from our Egyptian slave owners. So now we can party, eat, drink, play, Act out sexually and morally. All of these things became the deep desires of the hearts of the people of Israel as they went into the wilderness. And that put God to the test. And when they didn't get what they desired, guess what happened? Which is exactly what happens to you when you don't get what your heart worships and desires and lusts for. They grumbled. They complained, as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. Wow. And again, he comes back and says for a second time now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived. We learn from their mistakes. there's that's so critical here for you to understand so okay so anything anything that takes over your life I don't care what it is and it can be different depending on the person whatever takes over your heart that you want more than anything else and you crave more than anything else now has become your idol this is what you think and perceive are going to bring you happiness and pleasure and joy in your life. Now let me, me flush this out a little bit more in detail, especially on how deceptive the human heart can be. How deceptive the human heart can be. What are we talking about? Let me highlight here, six areas that I think is is really key. The first one has to do with wanting or desiring something that God does not want or desire. Now that's pretty obvious, right? If you want something that God does not want or desire, whatever that is deeply, and this is something that you desire and crave more than anything else, that's your idol. I want to be married to somebody else. I want my neighbor's Lexus. I want the new boat that my friend has. I want well-behaved children. (laughs) uh, You're kind of edging over from preaching to meddling at this point. All right. I, I, that's what I want more than anything else. I want, I want something I think is going to bring me happiness. I want this guy to ask me out. I want this girl to go out with me. I want to get straight A's in school. Settle for nothing less. I want, and you just, Whatever. Now, it's obvious that some of the things that I've stated here, you could argue God does want for you. But at least we can say at this particular point, the things that it's very obvious from scripture that God doesn't want has to be ruled out, right? But the heart is much more complicated than just that. Wouldn't it be nice? I think that most Christians think on this first level, all right. And in fact, they'll say and when you when you sit down with them and you're counseling and working through a particular problem that they have, uh, they'll say, well, what's wrong with that? Where in the Bible does it say that's wrong. You'll get that kind of thing. And I love it when people say that, because at that particular point, I load up my howitzers and lower it in their direction. All right. And I'm ready to help them understand that the Bible doesn't have to directly, specifically say something is wrong for it to be wrong. It doesn't have to. There's a lot of things you do that's wrong that the Bible doesn't specifically say is wrong. A lot of stuff. And you kind of soothe your own conscience by saying, wait a minute. I, where do I don't remember in the Bible any God forbidding that? Where does he forbid that? So I'm okay. <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. Uh, I mean, the apostle Paul was a well schooled in Scripture, right? We would all agree. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Go over to 1 Corinthians 4, 4. He's well-schooled in Scripture. He knows the Bible. He knows his Bible well. Look what he says about himself. He says to the Corinthians, he says, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself. Uh, From my understanding of Scripture, I, I don't... I've done nothing wrong, but notice what he says. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord, even though I'm not conscious of anything specifically in terms, and his conscience was very biblically informed. I'm not conscious of anything biblically that I'm doing wrong, That still does not let me off the hook. The Lord is the one who examines me. It's what he ultimately, what his ultimate desire is. So wanting or desiring something that God does not want or desire is only the first stage. Let's take this a little bit deeper here. What about this? Something can become an idol when wanting something that God wants or desires, but wanting it so much that one becomes ungodly to get it or ungodly if they don't. This happens all the time. Too often I've had people in counseling, parents, who have said to me, We raised our children in a Christian home, took them to a good church. They sat under the teaching of the Word of God. We tried to lead our home biblically as best as possible. And their child has grown up, become a teenager, and walked away from the faith. And sometimes in tears, a mother will look and say to me, All I want and all I desire is for my son or daughter to become a Christian. Is that wrong? No, on the surface, it's not. But you examine it a little bit deeper where this has become a reigning idolatrous desire in her heart or in her husband's heart that controls her. How do you know? How do you know when that happens? I mean, you want what God wants. That is, you want your child to follow Christ. You want them to grow up to live for him. But that desire has become so intense so fervent that it becomes more important than being God's kind of person. Here's being God's kind of person at this level. Here's my desire to see my kid walk in the ways of Christ. It trumps that. No, no, no. That must never be the case. First and foremost, I must be God's kind of person. And so what Christian parents will often do is they'll start to water down their view of soteriology And they'll say, well, I can remember when they were three years old, they prayed this prayer of faith. So I'm going to hang my hat on that, that once saved, always saved. Really? Now your kid's running off and being a part of the drug culture or acting immorally, and you're still going to hang on to once saved, always saved? You water down your view of soteriology. Why do you do that? Because that desire to have your kid follow Christ is now more important than being God's kind of man or God's kind of woman, God's kind of father, God's kind of mother. It's taken over. Now it's become an idol. It's become such an intense desire in that person's life. It's destroyed everything in their life. How do you know? Because when they don't see their kids start to turn around and really follow Christ, then they can become angry, hateful, bitter, upset, or swing to the other side of the pendulum. They become depressed, withdrawn, They sulk. They secretly are angry at God. Why? Because they don't see their kid coming to Christ. They don't see their kid following Christ. Is it possible your kids not following Christ because of your idol? By the way, most kids that I've talked to can see it in their parents. I know they want that. They know it. Would you say that that's your parents' deepest desire? Oh, yes. Yes. How do you know? Oh, they just talk to me about this all the time. Wow. That's wanting something that God does not want or desire that God wants or desires, but wanting it so much that a person becomes ungodly to get it or ungodly if they don't get it. Or sometimes I'll have a wife say to me, you know, all I want is for my husband to love me. Is that so wrong? No, the Bible talks about that. Husbands, love your wives. Very, very clear. That's there. Can it become wrong? Absolutely. How do you know it becomes wrong in her life? All I want is for my husband to love me. How do we know that it's become wrong? How do we know that that's become an idol in her life? Because it becomes more important than being God's kind of woman. When he doesn't show her the love that she thinks that she deserves, then she becomes angry, hateful. Mean, vindictive, or she withdraws, becomes depressed, doesn't communicate any longer. Or I've had husbands that have said this to me. You know, the Bible talks about the fact that wives should submit themselves to their husbands. All I want is just for my wife to biblically submit to me. To follow me. That's all I want. Now, the Bible talks about that, obviously. Ephesians 5. How do we know that that's become an idol in his life? Because that particular desire now has become the rolling, controlling the ruling and controlling desire of his life. It's more important than being God's kind of man. Why? Because when he doesn't see her following him, his lead, he becomes angry, hateful, mean, upset. He may even show it physically towards her, and he starts to get rough and abusive. Or he withdraws, he ceases to communicate with her, stops talking, becomes depressed, withdrawn. Because it's not servicing his idol. That has become more important than being God's kind of man. Wow. Now, that's ruling a person's life. That's how that person is perceiving their relationships. What about this? Being controlled by expectations and becoming ungodly in thought, word, or deed when that expectation is not realized. Listen to this. Listen carefully. Expectations are seed beds to idols. That doesn't mean that all expectations are wrong. We're not saying that. We're supposed to have godly expectations. But, now listen carefully, and you know this, right? In the depths of your own heart, you know this. Sometimes those expectations become controlling expectations. They rule you, and you don't even realize that they are ruling you. (laughs) I talk to seminary students sometimes, after they've been sitting in class all day long, in seminary classes, drinking in all this stuff, they're getting tired in the afternoons, they're ready to go home, see their wife, and explain all the wonderful things they've learned in Scripture, I say say to them, you know, sometimes you guys are sitting there in seminary, and you have certain expectations about when you're going to go home that evening. Say, I can't wait to get home because I am tired of sitting in school and I'm hungry and I know that my wife is waiting for me, anxious to have me come home. In fact, she's prepared dinner for me and she probably has roast beef with gravy, mashed potatoes, my favorite peas, my favorite dessert. And I can't wait to go home and explain to her all the stuff that I've been doing that day. And I get home, and I walk in the door, and I don't smell roast beef. I smell dirty diapers. What has that woman been doing all day? Where? What's going on here? And now he's upset. So he yells upstairs, hey, sweetheart. What are we having for dinner? She says, there's bologna in the fridge and there is uh, the bread there on the counter. Help yourself. What? Really? Does she realize all the work that I've been through all day today? Does she understand what's happened here? I have been laboring hard in seminary, studying my head off. And... I come home to a bologna sandwich? What? Expectations. Now he's upset. Now he's angry. Now he's short with his wife. Those expectations seep in very, very quickly and all of a sudden take dominant rule in our thinking And this is what these expectations become, demanding desires. At that particular point, when an expectation becomes a demanding desire, it becomes an idol to us. It is a functional God, small g. And we have thousands of them. Expectations. Right? I expect this to happen, this to happen, and when it doesn't happen the way that I expect it to happen, then, boy, we are not happy. We are not happy. Now, we can have disappointed expectations. That's not wrong. But when those expectations have become ruling, demanding expectations, then they become idolatrous, and it changes the way that we interact interpersonally with other people. It causes more conflict. Perceiving, in this particular say, or we would say, being controlled by these expectations, becoming ungodly in thought, word, or deed when that expectation is not realized. Here's the fourth thing: perceiving a a desire, a deserved right. And following through with an ungodly, with ungodly words, thoughts, and actions to try to get it when that right is denied, perceiving a deserved right. Now I'm going to tell you something. <clears throat> Americans love rights, right? <laughs> we even have a Bill of Rights. I have a right to this. I have a right to that. The old McDonald's commercial. You deserve a break today. Yes, I do, because I have a right. Right, I have a right to be treated fairly. I have a right to have a caring and compassionate husband. I have a right to have a wife that adores me. I have a right to have well-behaved children. I have a right to have a pastor that preaches riveting messages every Sunday. I have a right to that. And when I'm denied my right, I am upset. Wow. Now follow me on this. Don't miss this. If you study the Bible very carefully... We only have one right, one, and that is to burn in hell. It's the only right we have. It's the only right we have to burn in hell, but by the grace and mercy of God. When you realize that and every day that controls your thinking and you get up every day and you say, wow, you know, I have a roof over my head. I have food to eat. I have transportation, I have a job, God supplies for my needs, I have a wonderful church, I have friends, uh, I am blessed beyond measure. You set all those right thinking aside and you begin to say, I really don't have a right to anything. You know that God could destroy all life on earth in a nanosecond and he would never cease to be righteous. I get this all the time. Once in a while, over the past several years, I've been asked to go up to Berkeley and talk to Berkeley students. And invariably during Q&A sessions, I get this question in one form or another that comes about and says something to the effect that, um, how can you believe that there's a God when there's so much terrible things going on in this world? Earthquakes and tsunamis and wars and people dying and how could you believe that there's a God? And my response is always 100% the same way. Oh, that makes me believe in God even more. (gasps) They're astounded by that. How could you say that? Because, I say to them, your question to me is based upon a false premise The false premise is that human life has a right to exist. We don't. We don't have a right to exist. We're under the judgment of God. The only thing that's holding that back is God's mercy. We don't have a right to exist. The very fact that so many people are still alive and God has not destroyed the entire planet shows me that he is a god of mercy and grace. Wow. That is so mind-boggling to them. Rights. Rights become demanding cravings. I have a right to fill in the blank. Whatever the whatever your thinking says, whatever your heart is saying, I have a right to, can easily become an idolatrous, demanding desire. Or what about this? Believing in something, a standard or a rule that is not of God that leads to ungodly practices. Sometimes people do that. They elevate certain ungodly rules Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that this is supposed to be a rule or a standard or practice, but they elevate that to a biblical level. And it leads to ungodly practices. This is where we always have to evaluate our lives and evaluate what we consider to be important from the standpoint of the word of God. We must always do that. Because of time, I've got to run on here, or thinking or having a mindset that is against the truth of God's word that leads to ungodliness in thoughts, words, or actions, that also can become an idol in your life. Anything can become an idol when your heart basically says, I must have or not have, whatever that is. And the key operating word here is must. I must Whatever that is, is what I worship. My ruling desires, my functional gods, my controlling inner cravings are my idolatrous desires that control me. They dominate me. These are the very things now that control our lives, dominate our thinking. Well, how do we change? We change by first recognizing what has become the idol, and second, by repenting, by repenting of that idol. This is where we get to regeneration versus rehabilitation because everything else in the world, and you can see this also in the area of Christian psychology, is all about rehabilitation they see, if you take a look at, at the top of the chart here, the sun, it's very determinative. And um, whatever that is, a person, if we were to take the biblical illustration as a person is like a tree and whatever fruit is produced by that particular tree, this person lives in a very dysfunctional family, And so as a result of that, the fruit of their tree shows strife and anger. It shows depression. It shows emotional problems. It shows phobias. According to the world's perspective, it shows poor self-esteem. All that's the fruit of their life. But down deep underneath, they would say what's driving that is a passive, empty, wounded, needy, broken heart. It's a passive, empty, wounded, needy, broken heart. The psychotherapist is now sent along to meet that emotional need, to offer unconditional acceptance, to in a sense reparent that person so that they're able to know God as Father. And Jesus now is redefined in this system where Jesus is a healer. He's a filler. You go to a lot of churches, you'll hear this kind of terminology going on all the time. He's a meter of needs for love and self-esteem. He's the cosmic psychotherapist. That's who he is. He's the cosmic psychotherapist. So that the whole goal here is to have a, you'll have, still have a passive, but in this particular case, passive heart, but in this particular case, it would be a full, healed, satisfied, whole heart that feels love, feels good about myself, is happy, has a healthy, functional lifestyle, That's the whole idea. But God and the scripture is looking for not real rehabilitation in your heart. God is looking for really heart transformation. A transformation that's only going to come through genuine repentance and the work of the spirit. This is going to be a battle. It's going to be a war. Bible talks about that. A process of putting off and putting on. From a biblical perspective, the gospel regeneration says the situation, whatever it may be, which is comparable to the sun, is just the heat that turns up the heat in your life. Rather than describing a dysfunctional family, which really comes out of family systems therapy, the Bible would say that a person has grown up in an unloving, sinful family. And as a result, it's produced things in their life like strife and anger and depression and emotional problems and fears and what the Bible would call really high self-esteem in terms of defending oneself in this family. Now, all of that is what man sees. That's part of the fruit. But what is it that God sees that's going on in their heart? Down deep inside, the definition of the heart now is radically different. It's not... Passive, empty, wounded, something that needs healing. The heart is sinful, calculating, selfish, greedy, depraved, full of self-love. That's radically different. And this is where Jesus comes and provides atonement. He identifies the idols, the wants, the desires, the cravings. He calls a person to repentance and transforms the heart and the mind. All of this is taken to the foot of the cross, so much so that ultimately the goal here is a heart that's been cleansed, that loves God first, is at peace, is guilt-free, is secure, loves others before self, and then produces fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Even though, notice in our chart, the heat doesn't go away. Even though they are still living in an unloving, sinful family. They still have the capacity to produce good fruit. Even though their surrounding environment is bad. Why? Because their heart is changed. They love God most not self, they're perfectly at peace with what God is doing, not struggling with their circumstances. They're guilt-free. What a liberating life to live. They're secure. There's a stability to their life. They love others before loving self. That's what Jesus talks about. There's the transformation that's needed. So then glorification is what we all look for because ultimately God is sanctifying us until we are entirely and completely glorified. And by the way, it's only biblical Christianity that has that kind of hope. There's no other counseling system in the world that has that hope of glorification. None other, none. So what do we need to do? We need to pray daily. We need to ask ourselves self-examination of the heart, which is critical to counseling and becoming Christ-like. Questions like, what are my goals, expectations, and intentions in this conflict? You're, You're taking an assessment of your own heart. What do I become anxious over or fearful over in this situation? which reveals the heart's longings. What makes me happy? Oftentimes what makes me happy is not what makes God happy. What motivates me more than anything else? Is it truly a godly desire? What would I like possibly more than anything else? Whatever that is, that is your God. God. In what situation do I respond in anger? Why does this situation or this particular person cause me so much anger? What perceived rights have been denied me? What I perceive that I think that I have a right to that somehow has been denied me? And what biblical standard or principle permits that thought, word, or action Those are the questions that open up a person's life. What do I do with those? I need to write down how that particular idol is worshiped in thought, word, and deed. How do I worship that idol? In my thinking? In my speech? In my actions? How do I worship that thing? And then acknowledge what it is and confess it to be a sin of idolatry. That is idolatry in my life. Ask forgiveness from God and whoever is a part of that worship process. Study God's character to examine how your view of God is skewed because every time that there is an idol, that reveals the fact that our view of God and the character of God is somehow misaligned. It's a bad view. Be ready to learn how to replace the idol. And lust worship with the worship of God Himself. Make Him my ultimate desire. In a sense, this is a process of having His desire become my desire, His will, my will, His passions, my passions. That's what I need to do. I have to will God's will after Him. Do an in-depth study on the character and attributes of God that are directly involved in this area of change. So this is going to be key. So there's what you need to do when you identify an idol in your heart. Idols, as James 4 says... These conflicts and quarrels come from these pleasures that rule and reign, the cravings that rule and reign in our thinking that we believe we must have. Now, in our second session, we're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about forgiveness and how forgiveness is such a critical, a biblical view of forgiveness is so critical In bringing about conflict reconciliation. So let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy towards us every day. It is seen when we disobey you and we allow these idols to become so predominant in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. And I would pray, Father, that you would enable us to identify these idols clearly. Confess them as sinful desires and expectations. Repent of them. And reestablish you as the one that we daily worship. Once we've done that, the conflicts that we have in our life will seemingly, for the most part, disappear. And we'll realize that the real source of the conflict was not the other person or not someone who disagreed with us, but it was that ruling desire that was a part of my heart. Help us to humble ourselves underneath the word of God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have a 15 minute break, I think, at this particular point. So at about a quarter after, if you would come back, we'll make an installment into our second session on forgiveness. So have a good break.